Welcome back to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. And I, would you say we're about to have a, a substantive discussion today? That seems to be the word of the word of the week. <laughs> substantive? It's going to be substantive. <laughs> Who's saying substantive? A report from Dennis Dodd, CBSSports.com, on Tuesday. Colorado holds substantive talks with Big 12 as Buffaloes consider leaving Pac-12. Hmm. Substantive. I don't know, I don't know that this is is anything new. I think if you've been following this, you, you kind of know that Colorado and not just, probably not just Colorado, but definitely Colorado based on a lot of the, the reports and the noise and the talk uh, emanating from the Big 12 side is, is one of the Pac-12 schools that I think that conference has in its sights and you know, at this point, w- with no deal done, any of these teams would would be, uh, I think, short sighted to to not be checking out their their potential exit plans. So, I'm I'm, I'm not surprised to see that headline, and I also don't think that it adds a ton new other than what Colorado's own AD said last week, which was that, hey, we're going to do what's best for Colorado. It is when you said substantive and then Colorado, I thought you were going to say that Deion Sanders collect a substantive paycheck for speaking at a convention of car dealers. I thought that's I thought that's what it was going to be. Have you have you seen that that headline over the past couple of days? Was there was the headline about his his paycheck in particular or just that he I think spoke? it's just the presumption that he's going to get an awful lot. No, it was the political uh surroundings that it's a a a very conservative leaning group of car dealers and just how extraordinarily rich car dealers can be in this country uh, which is true. People vastly underestimate the amount of wealth that you can rack up by owning car dealerships. That and used to be beer distributors, like just a license to print money. This high-powered group of car dealers, uh, Dion was speaking, believe, alongside a number of fairly prominent conservative-identified uh, celebrity uh, types. I, okay, I gotcha. And he talked about the need for our country to toughen up. He said, we've become a soft country. We need to toughen up. Do you think so? I, I'm just like wired to assume that every public word spoken by a head football coach has some recruiting angle to it. And I'm now I'm I'm just wondering what the recruiting angle is to speaking at a car dealership event and, <laughs> and talking about how untough the country is. Maybe maybe there's someone in the portal who needs to hear that. That's that's wow. gonna be what sways them to come to Colorado. Now, see, I tend to think about this one as uh about about Deion Sanders bottom line, because I think there's a lot of money to be made. In that message right now being resonated by giving up a old grab, grab yourself by the bootstraps and, and make yourself into something for understandable reasons. Um, yeah. So th- that's what I tend to think. This helps Dion's bottom line and his appeal. And there is, there is no one who is going to benefit more than Dion Sanders from this whole foray into college coaching. So in addition to the substantive talks between the Colorado uh, between Colorado and the Big 12, reportedly. Uh, we also have this from John Canzano yesterday. He spoke with Oregon Athletic Director Rob Mullins, uh, who told him, quote, The Pac-12 has been very good to the University of Oregon. We've had tremendous success, and our brand has grown in strength over the years. By any metric, we're excited about the future of the Pac-12. And on the conference's ongoing media rights negotiations, he said, we've just got to go get it done. So... <laughs> that to me does not sound like the AD of a school that's about to bolt 
for the Big Ten, but I also think we've reached a point where, you know, like you and I growing up and, and going through journalism school and learning the business and everything, you're taught that nothing beats a named on the record source, right? That's correct. And I've, I'm usually of that mind that when you're, you're trying to get a sense for what's going on in a, a mystery cloaked process, pay attention to the people who put their name to what they're saying and say it publicly and on the record. Mm -hmm. But with conference realignment, I don't know. I don't know if, if, we're at the point where I think we're maybe past the point where you, you you stop putting so much stock into what public figures say on the record, and maybe you do pay a little bit more attention to the other stuff, or maybe that's a fool's errand, and that's exactly what you know the folks who are working behind the scenes to push some of that stuff out there want. So it's all getting very messy. It's all getting very confusing. I think based on the, the, the current news cycle, I think it's fair to say um, Colorado's at least looking around mm -hmm. and and also that it's not a foregone conclusion that the Pac-12 is going to fold. I think it would be weird for Rob Mullins to agree to do um, an, an on-the-record interview with John Canzano and, and say what he said if, if Oregon thought it was just a, a foregone conclusion and, and a formality that it was out the door. If they were deciding to bail... You're absolutely right. If they were deciding to bail, there's no reason for Rob Mullins to do this. So that's like a very accurate reading. I would like to say, as someone who covered the NFL for, God, 15 years, I am very accustomed to the 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 sham that is like journalism, like that it becomes at this level where the actual on-the-record quotes stop being nearly as meaningful as the off-the-record indications, and then how mysterious and crazy the process becomes because the people relaying the information, which are purportedly objective journalists, stop being objective because they're essentially carrying out a message from someone with a very vested interest in the process. Um, it's, it's really hard to, to sort of differentiate what exactly is going on and, and who to trust. But the fact that Rob Mullen said that in an on-the-record interview means more than the interviews that we've heard, even from Kirk Schultz and the University of Arizona president, who's been fairly forthcoming, because I see those as schools who have a very vested interest in preserving what's left of the Pac-12 or the Pac-10 now. Like that's, that's a main objective for them, whereas Rob Mullins is from a school where if the conference was going to disintegrate, it would disintegrate because Washington and Oregon leave. Like that's that's really how I see the situation right now. I think it's it's possible though that Oregon and Washington are in kind of they're they're in an advantageous situation from a PR perspective because I actually don't think the first step would be the Big Ten just straight up inviting those two and them leaving. I think it just. Right now, I mean, based on what we know, it seems like if the Pac-12 is going to fall apart, it starts with Colorado and Arizona and maybe ASU and maybe Utah, some combination of those two to four schools leaving for the Big 12. Then the Big 10 can sweep in with, you know, whatever uh, low ball offer it wants to, to cut Oregon and Washington in, right? Because they got nowhere to go and they need a new home. And I don't think either of those schools want to be in the Big 12. So... I think Oregon, Washington are in a place where if they end up leaving the conference, it's because, oh, well, look, 
we were excited for the future of the Pac-12. You know, we were committed to the to the other nine. We we did think that we were going to get this done, and we did want to stay out west. We didn't want to leave, but look, Colorado left, Arizona left, two to four of our schools left for the for the Big Twelve. So what choice do we have now? We have to go to the Big Ten. This is out of our hands. So I think when you when you say something publicly that indicates a future in the Pac-12. In Oregon and Washington's position, you're less likely to have that come back and burn you because you ending up in another conference, and the other conference we're talking about is the Big Ten most likely, would be precipitated by decisions made on other campuses and not necessarily on yours. Really? Because I, I think, think so. that if there, I think if there's a decision, I think if there's a decision here, it's that Washington and Oregon decide that the deal that's on the table from the Pac-12, like the the remaining conference, the media rights deal, isn't sufficient for them to keep pace and that they need to bail. Like that's that's what I see as sort of the inciting event. And maybe it does get released differently, but in the same way that a college coach withdraws from consideration for a coaching job, once he finds out he's not getting the job, like I could see that being the order where Colorado and, and maybe Utah, if they ended up going to the, the Big 12 or whatever, contingent defects to the big 12 that announcement might come first but the inciting incident is actually washington and oregon deciding we've we've got to take the last train out of town even if it means abandoning sort of the schools that we've been tied to and our west coast conference i i i see that as the inciting event am i wrong So you think you think the likely order of events is washington and oregon see the final deal and say Eh, that's not enough. We're not signing a grant of rights. Yes. And then a Colorado or an Arizona or whoever says, well, I mean, if Washington and Oregon, okay, it's done. If Washington and Oregon aren't signing, then it, it, we're toast here. There's nothing left for us. What's the Big 12 got? You'd think that's kind of how it goes. Yes. I'm basing that. And again, <laughs> here's where we get into sort of the the long math of named and unnamed sources. I think the Big 12 is clearly agitating and wanting to add and all of the sort of pressure about the size of the the pac-12 deal or the little bit of sneering condescension about that is originates for you guys you guys are going to get left behind you guys are going to be left in a conference that's going to be like the big west to to try and sort of further the impatience that they have of, hey, are we just going to get left high and dry if slash when Washington and Oregon decide that they're not going to do this? That's I, I've also based that a lot on that we haven't heard much from named sources from Washington and Oregon, which is now a little different because we do have this from, from Rob Mullins with John Canzano, which is a statement of, hey, we, we need to go ahead and get this done. I could also see that being a statement that is aimed at the TV networks that they're negotiating with of we haven't accepted your deal yet or you haven't finalized your offer and it's time to do it now because we got to make a decision like there's the the clock's ticking now it's it's now or never deadlines are what make deals and the one thing that's happened now is that the the conference has so far overshot any estimates its own estimates of a timeline that there's kind of what's the urgency now 
they've they've got to create some. So it could be, but but again, I'm I'm spitballing there. I'm still I'm still just not. It's not adding up for me how Colorado is one of the. I mean, if we're splitting the remaining ten Pac-12 teams down the middle, are we saying Colorado's in the bottom tier value wise to a TV network? I don't know, man. Arizona <laughs> certainly is. Arizona is, but Colorado's got the Denver market, and you've got, a got re- the basketball pole too. Yes, but and you've got a really high profile. You've got a really high profile college football coach, and and they do have. I mean, it's a while ago now, but they do have a share of a national championship, even if they got it because the officials couldn't count to four. That I mean, there's. I think that Colorado. I hate talking about schools as brands. But I think Colorado's brand is significantly, is certainly higher than its recent on-field product has been. Yeah, I'm just, I don't see how the networks involved in these talks with the Pac-12, whoever they are, streaming services, ESPN, everybody, combined together would look at this group of Pac-12 teams and say, eh, yeah, you're not worth, you know, 31.7 million is the number because that's what Big 12 is. Big 12 schools are getting per school per year. How does a school like Colorado, who is not one of the big money-making brands mm-hmm. attracting value in the Pac-12, go into the Big 12 with the TV network saying, oh, yeah, but if they join the Big 12, we'll, pay, we'll cut them in at 31.7 million. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I think you're right there. I, 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 think, I think your logic's sound. Um, but I also think that if the Pac-12 is going to dissolve, Colorado is going to be one of the more, it, it fits geographically with the Big 12 as much and maybe more than any other school. I mean, there's even a history that's there. So I, I could see it being an attractive target. And the Big 12 right now is wanting, they're kind of the, the striver that is yeah. trying to be, the not just an afterthought like they don't want to be they don't want to sink below the ACC and the Pac-12 like there's a real survival of the fittest and feeling that okay if there's there's two super conferences now and then there's going to be three others from the power five and maybe one of those is going to vanish entirely getting Colorado would establish the big 12 as the conference that is not going to disappear yeah and and you know I mean as far as like what the what the TV networks are willing to to cut in. I, I mean, no one knows exactly what the language is in that Big 12 TV deal. Maybe there's, you know, like I, I think it was, was it reported that the the Big 10 maybe has clauses for, oh, if they add new teams, it, you know, allows them to redo it. Or and there, there could always be language already built in there that, that accounts for potential expansion. Um, but you know that regardless, like Brent, your Brett Yormark wants to destroy the Pac-12 so badly that like he's going to advocate like crazy with the networks for whatever deal is going to get whatever Pac-12 teams in his league. That's what it. That's what it seems like. And that just that kind of <laughs> that kind of that, that that seems to be the vibe of the tenor of the conversation, the substantive conversations. You know when they joke about. If you're being chased by a bear, you don't have to outrun the bear. 
You just have to outrun the other guy that's running away from the bear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the Big 12 right now, right? Like, they've got their direction plotted. They're all in the boat, and, and they're thinking, we've just, got, we've just got to be a little bit further ahead of, uh, of the Pac-10. And maybe they're going to do it. But I don't see a scenario where Oregon or Washington ever considers joining the Big 12. Like, I just don't, I don't see that ever being a possibility. So it makes sense to me that the Big 12 is sitting there and looking at, like, if we're going to survive past this next deal, right? Like, if we're going to survive as one of the power conferences, if one of the, that top tier, your champion automatically gets, gets a, is considered uh, a candidate for the, the college football playoff or is guaranteed a berth once the, if the field expands, like all of those things, they're going to need more schools. And in that situation, I think it's almost non-negotiable that Colorado would have to go to them. I don't, I don't know if they can't get Colorado, where are they going to get the programs that could push them to that level? Because I, I mean, they're, they're, a, they're a conference. Are they, do they have more, of a vacuum at the top of their conference than the Pac-12 does. They lose Oklahoma and Texas. The Pac-12 loses USC and UCLA. Who's got the bigger vacuum at the top? I think it's the Big 12 because you've still got Oregon and Washington in the Pac-12. And And the two-time defending conference champions, too. Yes. This is, again, where you get back to. Does Utah move the needle? Like, is is Utah that, that signature of a program like I'm not going to like UCLA is clearly not. It's not one of the four or five best football programs over the past 10 years, but it is one of the four or five most valuable programs to have. And not just because of men's basketball, like it's UCLA. I, I guess that's how I see it. That I, I think that the big 12 is more desperate to add a name program which would be Colorado, than, than the Pac-12 is right now at this point. I've been trying to think of like insane scenarios that are, are not in kind of the, the mainstream bucket of what people are considering w- with regard to realignment possibilities. Is there a world where just, let's say it's just Colorado and Arizona, so two schools, and I think if, if it's only going to be two schools, most people would say it would be Colorado and Arizona. Leave for the Big 12. That opens the door for the Pac-12 to either add San Diego State and SMU to get back to 10 or just roll forward with eight. I've been thinking about this. Like, Pac-8? How, 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 how zany can we make this, this uh, hypothetical here? Roll forward with eight getting paid more per school per year than they would have with 10 with Colorado and Arizona in the conference because them leaving increases the overall average value of the remaining eight brands. What do you do with your non-conference schedule? Well, you, you, do you encourage really people, people to beef it up and take so the that's play why anyone you, anywhere? You'd have no choice probably, but to, but to add San Diego state and SMU or at well, least San Diego state. And then you can play an eight game conference schedule. Everybody plays everybody and, and you you find a fourth non-conference game, which is no easy task. It's already hard enough for Pac-12 teams to find three. So this would not, I'm not saying like this would not be an ideal scenario. I'm just like I I'm, I'm thinking about individual school value, like per school value, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know that Arizona and Colorado alone leaving the conference would drop the average value of the remaining schools, right? <laughs> yeah. Like if you just looked and now there's the there's the, the, the issue of inventory, right? You would you'd have fewer games now. So that probably changes the math too. And then it's just like the Pac-12 going forward with eight teams is not, not viable. I don't think anybody believes that, but this is a podcast. It's May 31st, whatever we're, we're spitballing here. It's just, I it's so, s- it's so strange to me that the, that I don't know. I, I it, again, it comes down to the big 12 wanting to, to destabilize the Pac-12 first and foremost, but it just seems strange to me that, that Colorado and Arizona would, easily command a sh- an equal share in the Big 12 with networks unwilling to give the Pac-12 a, a similar deal with those two schools involved. Yeah, it's such a... The thing that's hardest about this exercise and the question of what the environment is going to look like is that there's kind of the question of who is this for? Who, who, who is all of this for? Because my answer would be an eight-team conference is preferable to an expanded conference that includes SMU. SMU makes no sense at all in, in, for, from a fan's perspective. Like, none. It, there's no geographic tie. There's, there's nothing other than that's a school whose academic credentials are enough for the Pac-12 to sit there and puff its chest out about, which it won't do about Boise State for some reason that I can't completely fathom, which annoys the hell out of me. Its best, its football program is best known for having gotten the death penalty. It's in Dallas, which I like Dallas. There is no city in this country that is further away from the Pacific Coast Conference than Dallas. None. And the, the stadium's located right downtown. I've been there before. The Sonics practiced there one time when I was there. It's a beautiful little campus. It bears no resemblance to any other campus in, in, in the conference. So from a from a a fan's perspective, I'd absolutely go forward with an 18 thing. From an athletic director's standpoint, the question is entirely about economics and exposure, right? Like you're as an AD, what you're most paranoid about is that the exposure of your conference declines and the, and the, and that is tied kind of together with the revenue and that you then don't have the budget to compete with not just the teams in your conference, but now you're talking about competing with the Big Ten and the SEC, which are on rocket fuel, which is another of those buzzwords like substantive rocket fuel. So who's it Who's it best for? The TV viewer at home or the TV networks? I don't think they really give a rip about anybody that's there in person. I think to them, it's entirely what you just said, which is inventory. And SMU is attractive because it's a different TV market. It's a place where you can start games earlier, right? Which is mm-hmm. which is an issue in, in the Pac-12 because you can't have a kickoff before noon. I don't care what they try to sell you on the idea. You cannot kick off a football game before noon locally. It's stupid. Yeah. Nobody calls the, it big 11 a.m. kickoff. God. Like the... That whole so Dallas, Dallas is attractive in that way. Like there are things about it, but I don't, I really don't care what TV executives think or what's good for them. Like I, I, I really, I really don't care. And I hate how many people have started to care. 
why do we care how much money TV networks make? And, well, you care because that determines how much money your program makes, kind of, but we're just overly fixated on that stuff. Yeah. I think we're overly fixated on everything, right? That's just, <laughs> just kind of the nature of uh, of media right now. Yeah. Um, well, we, we have a, an interesting question from Ian this week. We'll get to that here shortly. I, I wanted to throw in a quick plug. Um, my mailbag that published on Tuesday afternoon uh, leads with a question about Jen Cohen's name being thrown out by, I'd say, just about every outlet that has given its list of of potential candidates for the USCAD job has included Jen Cohen. I was asked about that um, and included some details of a contract extension that she signed in October that was not announced by the school, similar to um, when she signed an extension in, in August of 2018. Um, They did it quietly. She doesn't like to call attention to those sort of things, but she is under contract with the university of Washington through June of 2028 um, and just signed this deal again in, in October. So within the last year, so um, she made a conscious decision to, to commit to UW for, you know, I'd say what, what constitutes long-term in the world we live in now um, the next five years, basically. So is, is that an indicator that she definitely wouldn't be moved by an opening like USC, you know, who knows, but I thought that was a, an interesting bit of information to to get out there. Do AD contracts work similarly to football coach contracts in that it's a question of how painful you make it for the school that would hire the person away or do they actually militate do they actually create a barrier toward movement? Like is she pretty tied to UW now? There's no there's no real barrier. If USC wanted her and she wanted to go, I mean her buyout it's actually, it's funny enough. It's actually tomorrow that her buyout drops from 1.5 million to 1 million because it's June 1st. Um, that was the date that was built into the contract. So and it's, it's a million dollars, you know, my, USC would think nothing of that. My opinion about Jen has changed dramatically based on the Kalen DeBoer hire. Um, as Jimmy Lake was, was getting fired. And I would say even after Kalen DeBoer was hired, I had a fairly negative sort of reaction to the hires that she had made. I know she was in the athletic department and involved in the Chris Peterson hiring, but I wasn't sure. I think that Jen deserves a ton of credit for acting as decisively as she did with Jimmy Lake and, and then making what appears to be an absolutely phenomenal decision with Kalen DeBoer. I hope she doesn't leave And I think it's important, like it's really easy to bash an administrator, especially when things don't go well. And like, hey, that's the hire, it's on your watch. And I would say like nobody, Mike Hopkins won back-to-back Coach of the Year awards. Like that looked like an awesome hire and now it looks, looks awful. But I think it's important when someone does something that is that right, that you sit back and acknowledge and say like, hey, my, my initial reaction was wrong. And I'm glad I I really hope she doesn't leave. I really I I I think that she is a huge asset for the University of Washington and I'm really glad she's the AD. I think there are a lot of people in the building who who feel that way, who share that feeling. I the more I think about it, you know, I've had conversations with a couple people about this recently. I would not be stunned 
if Jen Cohen wanted, you know, a greater challenge, um, if she just wanted to see, hey, I have confidence in myself as a professional. I want to I want to see if I can go do this, you know, in the L.A. market, you know, on the biggest stage at a school that legitimately expects to compete for national championships in football every season, whether it's realistic or not. And has a head coach in place who they kind of shocked the world by going and, and poaching from Oklahoma and acted aggressively and in a cutthroat manner when it came to securing their their conference future. And, you know, pri- absolutely prioritizes winning football games at the highest level that you're going to see on the West Coast, certainly. Um, I, I wouldn't be shocked if she was at least intrigued by the idea of going and being the AD in a department like that, I still would be a little bit surprised if she left at this point. I mean, I think Washington's at such a critical juncture, you know, historically, when we look back 50 years from now, this period is going to be a really interesting one to study. She's got a head football coach who she hired, who's in his second year, um, who they have a, they have a great, great relationship, a lot of trust in one another. Um, I don't know that she would want to walk away from that necessarily. I think that they, you know, they kind of finally have the football program back at a point where expectations are really high and everyone's kind of thinking this 2023 season is going to be really special and all these things. And I just, I'd be, I'd be a little bit surprised if now was the time that she wanted to, to, to go do something new. But if, if she were ever going to leave Washington for another AD job, I think it would be one at a school where it's it's like the head football coach um, at a pretty good school with pretty good resources that has its uh, its own proud tradition, winning a little bit there and saying, "Gosh, but what could I do if the roster was all four and five stars? You know, what could I? What what if I went and took one of these jobs where, as long as we work hard and and." recruit the way that we know we need to recruit we are gonna have a roster stock with the best what would it be like to coach the very best players and i think a school like usc even though they've created all these messes for themselves over the last quarter century or whatever it it at least is in position to be one of those athletic departments so like from an ad perspective i do think that there there is that that pull of like okay i did it here or there or or over here or at this school where you know we weren't we weren't broke, we weren't poor, but man, what would it, could I do it in LA? You know, could I, could I do it at the school that's won all these national championships and all these Heisman trophies? And maybe I, you know, maybe I can be the person who stops this ridiculous streak they've had of ADs who either are completely incompetent are checked out or in Mike Bones case, uh, allegedly uh, kind of a creep. So also a that's also a con that's also on the con list though because there's some stuff to clean up there let me let me make my pitch now specifically about this job all of that very well may be true and there may become there may come a time where jen cohen is offered a job that is 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 true it gives her a chance to fulfill the dreams she has on a bigger stage at which point hey i'm gonna wish her the best of luck usc is not that job this is a terrible job it is an absolutely terrible job. And if you don't believe me, just sit there and look at what the last few ADs have gone through. Some of those ADs have not been good hires, and Mike Bone apparently is on that list. 
There's a story, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, in The Athletic talking about all of the insensitive, is putting it a nice way, questionable things he said regarding the factor of race in hiring while he was at the University of Cincinnati. He's apparently rubbed people the wrong way at USC. Um, this reminds me, like that opportunity of going to USC because you're like, oh, it's USC. Like it has, it's, it's the most prominent program in the conference, at least for another year until it leaves. But man, that place is a mess. And that's the one thing I'm going to miss most about USC is that its ability to commit repeated unforced own goals just fire the ball into its own net. Like yeah, the, the sheer level of incompetence that has occurred and unforced errors at that program is unbelievable. And I'm going to miss that. You don't want to be. After Pete Carroll, who's their second best hire over the past 25 years? The second best hire. Who is it? Is it Enfield? I, I think it's Lincoln Riley. Probably, but he's been there a year. Yeah, but he's And you're an, not even going to get credit for him. He's an established playoff coach. But you're you're not going to get the credit for having hired him. He actually when you go there, you might be less powerful than your football coach. So that's another that's another consideration like at Washington, you hired Kalen DeBoer. Yeah. You know his, you know his character and and who he is and what he's about. And I'm not that's not any kind of judgment on on Lincoln Riley. I'm just saying you you don't have that relationship with the head coach now and you don't and, you don't and know. His, his success reflects on you. His success reflects on you because idiots like me come out and say, you've got to give Jen Cohen credit because she went and hired Kalen DeBoer. And I didn't know because it was a guy from Fresno State, hadn't been at one program for very long in his climb up. Yes, back then when he was at, at back in North Dakota. His his success reflects on her. That won't be the case with, with Lincoln Riley. Yeah, it's so like I, I, I like to say I'd I'd be a little surprised. I wouldn't be stunned. I'd be just because I know how competitive she is. And I, I think there is a part of her that like would love to would, I hate to say at the highest level, because like Washington is a, a top 20, top 25 school nationally and in athletic department revenue, they've got resources. Most, most power five coaches would look at Washington and say, that's a place with the resources where you can win but it's not USC, right? Mm-hmm. And very few schools are. So I, I could just, I could see the 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 nugget of intrigue in her mind, at least to think, man, what you know, what would it look like at a school where there are no budgetary impediments? We're always going to have everything we need. Five star recruits want to play there. There's a head coach in place who has a you know, has, has name recognition, has brand power, however you want to say it. They're going to be in the Big Ten. If we agree that the SEC and Big Ten are, are becoming the power two, there's only 32 of those jobs, right? And that's one of them. And guess what? You don't even have to leave the Pacific time zone to go do it. She went Man, to school look San Diego State. There's some familiarity with Southern California. I'm just saying there's enough, there's enough there to make you think like, I'd, I'd be a little surprised if she dismissed any opportunity on its face and didn't pursue it. And we also don't know that USC is actually interested in her. I would throw that out there, too. Look at what that job did to Pat Hayden. Like, and I, I'm, I, I should be clear, like, I have a little bit of a personal connection to Pat Hayden. Um, 
it's a tough job, man. It's just a brutal job. And you look at the hires that have happened there. There are, it's a mess. Like, and it's not, that's not because of one person and it's not because of one bad hire. Like it is a mess because of all of the different conflicting agendas that are there and the amount of money that's involved. And they hired Rick Majerus. You remember that when he was going to coach their basketball oh, team? Yeah. Oh yeah. You remember that? that? Tim I Floyd? Tim Floyd, who might be one of the single most disreputable basketball coaches that I've ever heard about from other people and things that he's done at different stops along the way. He was a basketball coach there and they got OJ Mayo and he pretended that OJ Mayo just showed up on his doorstep. And it, it's just, it's just a mess. Pete outside of Pete Carroll, it's really hard to identify a good a good stable hire they've made in the last 25 years. And the only reason that Mike Garrett survived as long as he is because he was such an angry cuss who didn't care what people thought about him. It's a brutal place. Um, do you follow TV, like the economics of TV news stations at all? Uh, n- not intentionally. I catch some here and there. Chris Licht. Chris Licht is the head of, uh, of CNN now. Before that, he was, he was in charge of the, the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. So he, I don't know if he was a producer or what, but he essentially works for Colbert. Colbert is the most important thing. When when Licht told Stephen Colbert that CNN CNN was interested in him to be the athletic the the director, the chief executive, Colbert's line was definitely don't go do that. <laughs> then Colbert told him CNN would be lucky to get you, but you're my friend, and I'm telling you not to go just because of how awful he said that job was, just the entire news industry, all of those things. For the past several months, this is according to the New York Times, <laughs> uh, Colbert has called him nearly every Friday, starting the conversation with the same four words. I told you so. It's a horrible job. USC AD is the, is the exact same thing as being the chief executive at CNN. It's a terrible job. Uh, should we get to Ian? Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll bring in Ian. Ian is our friend. He is our sponsor. He is our supporter. Ian McFarland from IP McFarland. Ian is someone that it's always worth talking to. If you've got an idea, if you've got something you want to bring to market, if you're looking to expand your sales staff or look for sales strategies, he, he's someone that's worth talking to because he'll think through opportunities He'll think through potential solutions. Maybe it is bringing someone and giving you someone to add to your sales staff or providing someone who can actually do the the heavy lifting of getting your product into the market. It's always worth a conversation. Ian McFarland, ipmcfarland.com. Here we go with Ian's question. Guys, no grand question this week. In fact, a complete divergence from the normal tone of the show. And it's just a reminder to everyone, whether you're working uh, in your daily life and in business, whether you're at home with your family, with friends, or particularly when you're online communicating with potential recruits, which you absolutely should never do. And if you do, you need to take a long look in the mirror. But that's just to remember empathy. Remember that we don't know what the person across from us is going through. We don't know what the person on the phone is going through. And we certainly don't know what the, the kind of soulless person on the other end of an online conversation is going through. 
even for those people that are closest to us. So remember to be empathetic. Remember not to make assumptions about people's lives and remember to just treat each other better. It's a good month to focus on that. And um, I appreciate the positivity Christian and Danny are putting out in the world around this podcast. And um, I hope we can all take that positivity and treat each other a little bit better. Have a great week. Keep it positive. Keep it empathetic. Love y'all. Good good message for me in there. I believe that's the first time anyone's ever said that about me. So <laughs> what <laughs> praise me for my positivity. I don't, I don't buy that at all. Uh, you don't well, consider maybe yourself a positive time. person. I, uh, some, some people I grew up with would be, would, would find that very, very comical. Um, not that I, really? I, don't, I, I don't consider myself to be a negative person. I just think, you know, I, I skew a little bit on the, maybe more than a little bit on the, the sarcastic, uh, skeptical side so really that's funny maybe it's our interaction is different and i'm kind of the person that rants and raves because i was going to say that i'm glad i got my ranting about usc out of the way before (laughs) ian came in and reminded me that i need to need to be a little nicer to people and give them the benefit of the doubt though i don't think that i took aim like i blamed the institution in general (laughs) yeah we we don't need to be empathetic toward institutions Because I don't think of you as being overly sarcastic. I think of me me as being the sort of the more judgmental of the two of us. I think I'm um I'm like the I'm like the introvert who uh spends a lot of time interacting with other people and spends a lot uh-huh. of time out in public, but like can't wait to get home and be by themselves. I'm I'm like that kind of positive. I'm kind of like sneaky positive. Uh-huh. I think that I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm very skeptical and at times probably more critical than I should be of, of just life generally. Um, but more or less am generally optimistic, you know, just about how that, that things are going to work out and that, you know, hard times won't last and all that stuff. Uh, but it's, it's cloaked in this like cynicism that I think maybe sends people in a different direction. Ah, oh, that's funny. Um, one of the things that I like most about doing this podcast with you is that I feel like we actually talk through issues rather than staging sort of what I call like broadcast set pieces. Mm-hmm. Like if you watch if you watch sports television now, which unfortunately is what people come to think of as sports journalism. And it's it's not it's a it's a very specific format that is specific to broadcast. But what it is is to find an issue, hopefully that has fifty percent of people on one side of it and fifty percent of people on the other side of it, and then you have two people who get on the opposite sides and then play fight, or they can fight for real if they want to. And That's what they call good radio, right? Yeah, and and it's. And when you seek that out as a format, there's a certain amount of artificialness to it because that's not how our real conversations go. And and what I like most about our podcast is that I do feel that it resembles real conversations in that generally, and you have to do a lot of the heavy lifting on this, it's explaining some of the nuances in the situation, like what's happening with the Pac-12 
I think we go through some of the more realistic scenarios, potential outcomes, potential motivations, without offering a, this is, they're screwing it all up. Because the truth is, like, if, if you're going to have an argument about that, and you're convinced they're screwing it up, right now you don't have enough information to even really make a solidly formed opinion about that, because we're not sure entirely what's going on. Um, and I actually, I, w- I would say that I think you're one of the more thoughtful people that I've ever talked about sports with in in sort of a broadcast medium because you are willing to poke through you'll even make a case against what you've just stated well there's an <laughs> alternative way of looking at it so it's funny that you th- you think of yourself as as cynical because that's not that's you're definitely understated and I would say reasonable <laughs> like that would be if you're going to ask me for an adjective to describe you Christian Capel is reasonable <laughs> I'll, I'll take that <laughs> And I appreciate the assessment. And that's, I think that that's also why I enjoy, I enjoy doing this show. Cause I know like there's no, I, clearly you don't feel any pressure for me to be this way. And there's no pressure from you on me to, to perform, right? Yeah. Like we're going to talk about what we want to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in the way that we want to do it and not feel like, you, you know, if we're, if we're not performatively outraged or, you know, staging, like you said, the the play fight over a subject that we may or may not even feel passionately about, then it's it's not worth listening to. And I think for, you know, I think I think 177 ratings on Apple Podcasts and a five star rating, Danny, shows that there's some appreciation for that in the, the <laughs> listenership. So uh, to actually address Ian's point, I, it, it's a good one. Um, the, I, I do kind of roll my eyes at the tweeting at recruits thing. Can't fathom ever doing that myself i i will say i think it's i think it's just part of it and i think that the more passionate fan bases have more people who do that and so probably a lot of alabama fans do that probably a lot of georgia fans do that and when you're a young person 16 17 years old you're making a decision and maybe a factor in that decision is like how supported am i gonna be or you know how how passionate is this fan base of this school that I'm going to? I see the stadium, they got a lot of seats, they fill it, but like how much do they really care? Maybe, you know, you you use that as a metric. Here I go again. I'm making I'm making a case for tweeting at recruits. That's how <laughs> that's how reasonable and and uh objective I'm trying to be. Um no, I agree with I agree with Ian's take on that. I think it's I think it's bizarre, but it is it's part of college football such and as I, it is. I, I would say this, that the allegiances regarding college football specifically create and lend themselves to an us versus them in a way that's, I I think, even more pronounced than in the NFL. Um, The NFL, you'll see, I think, more hostility exhibited by fans toward their own team. Um, There is a tribal element to college sports, which is part of what makes it so great and part of what can make it such a such a sticky and problematic thing like you don't see nfl fans poisoning the trees <laughs> at the headquarters <laughs> of their rival team um and 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 i say that like i i i believe in passion for your teams like i i, I do i do support that the thing that ian said about empathy and i, I think this kind of connects to the idea of not acting sort of performatively or trying to assume the worst about other people is that we are surrounded and in some cases active on 
networking tools that are encouraging people to interact in that way, to treat each other as two-dimensional characters who embody the opposing side that embodies everything I dislike. Um, and there's certainly times that I fall into that, namely when I talk about Oregon fans. Um, but w- there really should be an understanding. There are people on the other side. That, that is a person. And getting into and creating that person into a two-dimensional character that you can dunk on. There's a question of how harmful that can be, but it's not harmless. And, and I, think, I think we should all keep that in mind because you can, at some extent, work yourself into a state where you really feel that that is the other person. And you're getting a very flat representation of them through whatever sort of opinion they're promoting, especially if it's online. Um, So I think kind of remembering that of like, we are all people that occupy the same space. And assuming the best is never... Is assuming the best about someone else, you'll never end up regretting that. You will end up regretting if you assume the worst about them. I have two thoughts on that. Um, I don't know if you watch the show Nathan for you or his uh, his show on HBO, The Rehearsal. No, um, I haven't. Is it good? It's, re- it's really fun. Like if you like the sort of like awkward comedy, um, he's a he's a master of it. I mean, he's just a brilliant comedian. But there, it's it, the rehearsal itself. And yeah, I'd you need to you need to watch the show. It's really difficult to explain. There are some touching moments. It's not just like pure comedy, and there are some like really like painful, like hard to watch moments. But he made a point in that show where he talked about how like you you realize that, and I, I'm 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 probably par- more paraphrasing than quoting here, but like you realize that your perception of yourself and your perception of other people are all fictional characters that only exist in your mind, right? The way you see yourself, nobody else sees yourself the way that you see you. And when you're on Twitter and seeing, you know, whoever, whether you think they're great or you think that they suck, you're the, you're the only person perceiving them exactly the way that you're perceiving them. Now, there are other people who are going to fall into the broader bucket of like, I think that person sucks too, or I think that person's great too. But the other thought I have on that is Twitter Twitter puts everybody on the same level, kind of. What I mean by that is, you know, the most famous person in the world could tweet something and you only got, you know, if you're subscribed to Twitter Blue now, it's more than this, but 280 characters to do it. And whoever replies to you could be an anonymous person with, you know, eight different numbers in their username with an egg as their avatar, but it looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It looks exactly the same. The font's the same, the, the, the type size is the same. They have the same number of characters to get their point across. And so there's all kinds of different tangents you can take on that as far as like, you know, legitimate journalists with actual sourced information. It looks exactly the same as people trying intentionally to spread false information, all these sort of things. But what I think is like, maybe it's just me who does this, but like at least earlier, and this doesn't happen really much anymore, but at least earlier in my career, like I'd, I'd get some, 
people coming after me for one reason or another. And, and you build them up in your head as this like big, tough, mean person because they're being a jerk. But if you saw them or met them or had a conversation with them, like the, the facade would probably drop pretty quickly, you know? And so I don't know. I, I try not to like, I see stuff like that and think like, man, like what, what's wrong with you that you're tweeting this at me or, you know, how can you like, this, this is your life. You get on the internet, just, just like be a dick to people. Like what, what satisfaction do you get from that? But then I think like, well, you criticize people, right? Like you just don't get on, you just don't tweet it, you know? So like I'm better than this person. Like I don't have negative thoughts about other people. I don't share them on the internet. Does that make me better? Maybe this person is just having a bad day, you know, like I, one of the things my uncle told me early on, he was a sports writer, um, a couple different places at ESPN.com for a long time. But he was like, you know, the angriest emails I ever get, he's like 99% of the time, if I reply back, they will reply back like much softer, mm-hmm. you know, and, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't think anyone would even see this. Uh, it just set me off. You know, I didn't really mean it like you know, sorry, man. Like, thanks, thanks for getting back to me. You know, no, no hard feelings. And that's not always the case, but yeah, you don't, you don't, Ian makes a good point. You don't know what people are, are going through. Life is hard. (laughs) You know, we all, we all try to get through it, uh, the best we can. And, and sometimes we don't represent ourselves the way that we want to. One of the greatest things about Twitter is that you can get on there. Anyone can get on there and hurt the feelings of the richest person in the world. (laughs) the worst thing about Twitter is that you can hurt anyone's feelings in the entire world. Like that's, I mean, it's, it's part of the deal and it's not unambiguously negative, but it's certainly not. And I think there's a question about whether it's an overall positive too. be nice. to. We always, we always amplify the negative too. Like this, when I got laid off and I tweeted that I'd been laid off and got hundreds of people, supportful you know supporting encouraging oh that's you know i'm canceling tomorrow i'll go with you wherever you go like we appreciated your coverage this is terrible like best of luck let me know if you need anything and I, there was there was like one person who was not even that rude but just like oh all you all you do is write fluff pieces anyway <laughs> and i get this like half second urge to just blow this person up yep but then I thought, you know, you haven't replied to any of these people who sent you nice messages. You're going to you're going to let this person be the one who who you acknowledge, yep. you know? It's like it's, that's it, yep. Don't do that. That's not right. That's not the right way to handle. Like that's come on, you know? You this is this is an ultra minority here that's 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 feels this way or that communicated this to you. Like all these people who offer support and like you're going to pick out the one person who didn't, you know, that's so I don't know what that has to do with empathy, but it's a thought I had. Well, it's about us all being prone to human fluctuations in emotion. And the fact that anger does transmit, like they measured it. Anger transmits is four times stickier, like specifically on Twitter, like an angry message, as opposed to a positive message, like same sort of tenor and, and volume, just a different emotion. It's four times stickier. That's, we all have a tendency to react to negative criticism. We all are more prone to, to react to anger and exhibit anger. And it can be a spiral 
or we can choose to sort of recognize that tendency we have and try and tamp it down a little bit because it does take effort and it takes understanding that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be more likely to respond to someone who's negative. If I'm cognizant of that, I can check myself from responding to it. I had to go and find, we'll bring this back to UW football before we, we wrap here. But I remember writing this in a story about Chris Peterson a few years back. Um, there's a video on YouTube of him speaking at a coaching clinic when he was still at Boise State. And he referenced a study, I believe it was in the Harvard Business Review, that determined that kind of what you said, six positive statements carry the same weight as one negative statement. Mm-hmm. And he said, we try to use words like, hey, think about next time maybe doing it this way rather than that's terrible. That ain't going to get it. And it's true. <laughs> the coach could tell you six positive things and one negative thing. And, and, and that's still like, I would, I would think any coach would probably say that's still a pretty good ratio, right? Mm-hmm. I told the guy seven things and six of them were positive, but maybe it, it needs to be actually greater than that because that one negative mm-hmm. wiped out the six positives. So now it's a wash. So something to keep in mind as, uh, as the calendar turns to June, we're Danny's out of town next week and I'm out of town the week after we might be able to get together for one episode between those two weeks. We might, uh, might just take the next two weeks off and call it the June vacation. But, uh, if those talks with Colorado get any more substantive, we we might not have a choice, (laughs) but to come back and put an emergency podcast together. So I also did find the story about Deion Sanders and the car dealers is on slate. It's written by Alex Salmon. Um, it's, it's worth your time. <laughs> the headline is, at a booze party for some of America's richest Republicans, everyone was a celebrity. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Uh, uh, well, we might not talk to you next week, uh, but we will talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>